Christianity, I don't know if you've heard this, but Christianity has been called a bloody religion. A bloody religion. Perhaps some even here today, here now, still consider this faith a bloody religion. Critics pointing to wars and trials and executions and martyrdom, all done in the name of God. And I don't deny any of that, that blood has been wrongly shed and shamefully shed for religion. It's happened. But even if there wasn't one battle or one crusade or one faith war, Christianity not only would be, but should be seen as a bloody religion. Which if I can just confess here and now as a Bible teacher, to talk about blood from this spot, it's really weird. It's really awkward. Because in a little bit, we're going to sing about blood, which is even weirder. Especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've walked in and we're talking about blood and singing about being washed in blood. You're thinking, what type of twilight, dusk till dawn church have I just walked into? It's very uncomfortable. So again, I'm just, I get it. I get it. We live in a sophisticated and, and, and we live in cultured times. Do we really need to talk about a bloody faith? Do we really need to be as educated and refined people understanding or a need to understand blood? Well, yes. See, if you were to take the Bibles that you have before you and you were to open them up, what you'll uncover is that Christianity doesn't only say there will be blood. It also reveals that our life and our death and our eternity depend on blood, much in the same way our own pumping heart does. So very briefly, if you, if, you, if you know the Bible at all, but from the very beginning of time in the infamous story of Adam and Eve, when they chose rebellion and came to the realization of their nakedness, they hid from God, we see that God does what? God covers them with animal skin. It says that they clothed themselves. No, God clothe them with animal skin. God did this, teaching us that a blood sacrifice took place to cover sin. And this progresses in the, in the sacrifices that their children would have grown up with. The horror story of Cain and Abel, we learn that it is not only a blood sacrifice, but a certain blood sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of purity and without blemish. And if we were to continue in that trajectory, we all meet Abraham. Does anybody know Abraham's famous song? Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Thank you so much for Bosco. Gosh. What was one of his, what was his son? It was Isaac. And then Isaac who had Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons and then, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of his sons was his favorite. Now, you might be thinking it's impossible for parents to have favorite children. No, it's not. Not at all. Actually, if you grew up and your parent told you that, well, we love everybody the same, we love all the kids. No, newsflash. You were the most unfavorite one if they told you that. <laughs> Every parent has a favorite kid. Now, my son's in the room, so he's my favorite. I have to say that not to stir anything up. But for Jacob, he had a favorite. What was his name? Joseph, little Jojo. That's what he called him. Actually, I don't know. He may have. I don't know. By the way, that's, that was his favorite. And how did he show that this was his favorite? He gave him a rad coat. I love you. 
gave him a coat. And the other siblings hated it. They hated Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. So what did they decide to do? They decided to kill him. Let's kill Joseph, the favorite. But, 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 some of the other brothers like, ease up, let's just sell him into slavery. Let's put blood on his coat and tell dad Jacob that he had died. So I give this entire preamble because Joseph being sold into slavery, I'm trying to stop it with my hand. It's not working. Joseph being sold into, I think it worked. Joseph being sold into slavery, pay attention to this, and ending up in Egypt launches a series of catastrophic events for God's chosen people eventually leading to little Jojo's family to be in Egypt during the time of a famine where in which these Hebrew people, starting from a small family, these Hebrew people grew in number more and more quite rapidly. And the Pharaoh of Egypt is watching this and he doesn't have much grace for this growing, you know, these groves of Hebrews. So Egypt decides to enslave these people, the descendants of Abraham, God's beloved people. Now listen ever so closely The story of Hebrews as slaves and God delivering them is the most important blood narrative within all of the Old Testament. I might venture to say it's the most important narrative in the whole Old Testament, but I don't want any emails, okay? If we don't get what I'm about to go over, if we don't get it into our gut, then anything I'm else going to say today, any other verses we're going to read today mean nothing. They mean nothing. I might as well just read the back of a shampoo bottle. It's pointless. We cannot miss what is considered to Jewish people the most significant historical focal point of redemption and freedom. Something so important that God has asked for it to be remembered and reenacted annually forever. And for those in the ancient days, the entire Jewish calendar would fall around this. And every Hebrew man, every Hebrew woman, every Hebrew child would gather and they'd squish into one city to remember the singular life-altering event. And what is that event? Well, let's read the gospel according to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7, if you have a Bible. Starting in verse 7. Should be on the screen as well. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It's called the Passover. Again, if we don't get this blood narrative, if we don't understand this Passover, we will not get the gospel. If we don't get this blood narrative, we will not get Jesus Christ. So how in the world does an ancient story of Hebrew slaves and grinding Egyptians, how does the famous Moses scream, screaming, let my people go, How do plagues and God's attempt to free his people, flies and locusts and boils and hail and frogs and so on, how does that have anything to do with Jesus? Or let's make it even more personable. How in the world does that have anything to do with us here and now? Here's how. Well, the 10th plague, as many probably here know it, Christian or not, is the most crushing of plagues. It is the most bloody of plagues. I'm, again, I'm assuming most know it, where God says there will be death of every firstborn. 
every family, both Hebrew and Egyptian, there will be death of every firstborn child. That's my firstborn son right over there. This is heavy stuff. Christianity is a bloody religion. Now, isn't it brilliant that Jesus deliberately chose this event, this historical moment during the annual tradition of the Passover, the seven-day festival of the unleavened bread, where Jewish men and women would remember vividly that exodus. Christ is using this festival, this annual festival that's been going on for centuries, he's using this festival to launch his own execution. Essentially, Jesus lights a fuse, and he sparks his final days. Collective Church, like I said, we are, as we're starting this, we want to do these short little pit stops as we build towards Easter Sunday. Because the final week of Christ's life, what's often called, you've probably heard it, Holy Week. Friends, I just tell you, it is fast and it is furious. It is seriously like an action movie. It's so exciting. Jesus is like this Harrison Ford fugitive figure, centerpiece of all these incredible stories. If you don't know that about this, what, this is how exciting this is. Look down here. This is, oh man, this is awesome. Look at verse 8. My printer really, man, I can't read these words. Bear with me. So Jesus, verse eight. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Verse nine, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And finally, verse 12, and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as they had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Did you catch this clandestine approach? That's odd, right? This whole thing is odd. Jesus is being super secretive. Like it's some sort of covert mission. He sets all of this stuff up with nobody knowing about it. These disciples had no idea. He's very, very secretive. Now, I want us to look. Check this out. He knew all about this. Look at verse 10. This is how secretive Jesus is. Behold, when you have entered the city, you'll find a man carrying a briefcase. Right? This is what he's doing. You're going to find a man with a jug of water. And then what does he say? Look at verse 11. And tell them that the teacher sent you. He doesn't even mention his name. Jesus is being very, very secretive. The question that we have to ask is why? Why is Jesus being so secretive? Well, because this Passover festival would have made Jerusalem its most packed. 100,000 people squished into this smaller city. Imagine New Year's, you know, at, in Times Square. That type of packed. And Jesus is the most hunted man there. His face plastered all over the screens in Times Square. There's German shepherds strolling the streets for him, that type of thing. Everybody wants Jesus. Every target pointed at Jesus. Because at this point in his timeline, infamous Judas has already agreed to betray him. Jesus has already flipped tables at the temple and Jesus has marched in on a donkey. We have passed the point of no return for Jesus. It would have been Wednesday evening, so the start of a new Jewish day, so Thursday. All of this showing us that Jesus is about a day away from his own execution. So he is being wise and staying hidden because he needs one more night. Jesus just wants one more night. He's not taking any chances. One more night, one more conversation, one more moment, one more lesson to explain the purpose of his blood. 
Jesus only talked one other time about the purpose of his death. Don't get me wrong. He talked a bunch about his death, but one other time with its meaning. So tonight is of paramount importance. Jesus is taking no chances, like I said, but get this. In order to explain this, he doesn't give them an algorithm. He doesn't give them a theory. He doesn't write a book. He doesn't set up a 3D model. He doesn't do an Instagram story. What does Jesus institute? He gives them and he gives us a meal. This is how he wants to explain the importance of his death, the purpose of his death. He gives them a meal. I think that's interesting. Jesus, if you haven't realized this, Jesus is obsessed with food. If you go through the gospels, he's constantly asking for snacks. Always. Do you have anything to eat? Anybody need a bag of Doritos? Jesus is always looking for snacks. He loves to eat. And Jesus gives them, and he talks about with them, bread and a drink and water, all these different types of things, all these very mundane things. But with Christianity, it's reinterpreted with glory. For Jewish culture, every Passover meal would have had these elements and functions that were reminiscent of their time in slavery. For Israelites, an ancient Passover meal, just so you guys know, how it would have gone down was essentially all these like low padded pillows and it probably would have been in a U shape. Okay, so it would have been in a U shape and there would have been food and wine on like this very low table, lower than how even the stage is. So, if you guys have seen, or if you guys have assumed how the Last Supper was, we're all probably thinking of who? Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, right? Where everybody sat in a row and it looks like they should have Max, like at a coffee bar with like headphones, whatever. Just this long straight word and they're not even making eye contact. Da Vinci's a total heretic. That's not how it was at all. At all. The Bible tells us, look at verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined. They laid down at a table and the apostles with him. They would have been propped up on their left elbow. Their feet would have been pointing outward from the circle and all would have been eating with their right hand. Basically, has anybody gone bowling? You know the rules of bowling? Your throwing hand, you don't eat you know, junk food with your throwing hand. It's sort of like this rule. You eat, that's how you do it. Makes sense? Somebody got it. I'm having it. Good for him. But this is how it goes. But let's get into the good stuff. What would they have eaten? What? I'm so pumped on this. What would they have eaten? Many of these elements of this celebration have evolved, but with Christ and the disciples, essentially it would have been this. If you're taking notes, write down this whole menu. It's pretty epic. First, they would have had four cups of wine. I'm already so pumped on this meal. Four cups of wine. Each glass of wine representing a promise that God has made. Exodus chapter six, this is what God says. This is what the wine glasses are based off of at this Passover meal. I'm gonna read them to you very, very quickly, but bear with me. The first promise is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second promise is, I will rid you of their bondage. The third promise is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the fourth is that I will be your God. And as this presider at this memorial feast would initiate every single one of these promises with the lifting of like this wine goblet, right? And he would lift and he goes, ah, this is how he'd initiate every new promise, every new act of the meal. 
Again, some of you are thinking right now, I'm gonna get out here and get my own wino Passover on. I get it, I do too, let's, let's, let's go. And so they're all pumped. And they would have also had roasted lamb, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and a fruit sauce. Every single one of those items overflowing with symbolism and profound meaning. Every single one. There's this great part in the book of Exodus where Moses establishes all of this and he speaks these words to the Israelites. Pay close, this is awesome. He says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land of the, that the Lord will give you, he has promised you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Hopefully we're starting to get the point that the Passover celebration was always meant to be a remembrance of the event itself. It's a remembrance. But did you notice? Did you notice this? That it's also a remembrance and a reactment for those who are not even born. Moses is wanting every generation born after the great exodus to experience this meal as if they themselves were saved on that frightful night. Every generation, every child, as if it's their own memory. Church, I just, we were praying about this beforehand before our gathering got started. I want us to realize that God cares about repetition. God of the Bible cares about repetition for ourselves and for our, for our children and for future generations. We are to have, if we read the Bible carefully, sacred rhythms of gathering together much like this, of breaking bread together like we're going to do, of rest and of reading and of prayer and so on. If anyone here is Jewish, you've probably heard this Passover story over and over and over and over. And that is precisely the point. Christianity is a faith system of repetition. I fear for many that there is, I've had many conversations with people where there is this desire for fresh revelation. Like there's some virtue in spiritual innovation, trying to break new ground in, in our spirituality. Conversations where people fully admit, oh yeah, I've, I've read what's in the Bible. It's not enough. God wants us to find satisfaction in our story and for this morning in the oldest, oldest religious sacramental meal in human history. So as Jesus is laying there and in front of him, there's a meal and all of these symbolic foods they would have these bitter herbs, like horseradish. Anybody here like horseradish? I could eat it like ice cream. I love it. And chicory and whorehound. And these are eaten as the, the Israelites were to remember how bitter their life in Egypt was. Exodus chapter one, this is where it comes from. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter, like horseradish, with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. Also, before Jesus and disciples before them at the table, there also would have been a bowl of salt water at everybody's placement. 
sounds disgusting. It's supposed to be um, unnerving. It's supposed to be bothersome and distasteful. So this bowl of salt water that would have been before him has a dual meaning. One, they're supposed to remember the tears that were shed as they were slaves in Egypt. And two, they're all supposed to remind them of the sea, the Red Sea, which parted before them at the Exodus. And all of the disciples would have known this, like we know the lyrics to Happy Birthday. Like they know it. Practice for decades, practice. And again, this was a sacred, expected tradition until this moment. Right now, in this moment, look at verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, like we talked about, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that now, now I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. None of this is making sense. We, sh- we read this because many of us are used to this or this is new. Peter and the rest of the disciples would have been going bonkers right now. Jesus is talking in more present and in future context. Did you catch that? It's like all of us having a Thanksgiving meal and me standing up going, you know what? I look forward to the day when America is colonized for this Thanksgiving meal. We all would have been like, what? No, this happened centuries. What are you talking about? It does not make any sense. Nope, Jesus, you're, you're reinterpreting it. You're messing it up, Jesus. Very quickly, that means that I'm not going to eat as Jesus or I'm not going to drink. That has many, many meanings. Jesus saying he's going to withhold from wine, many believe that he is taking an oath. For somebody to withhold from something, especially food, it's an oath. What his oath is saying, what it's holding to is one, that there's going to be sustained absence from his presence. Two, there's going to be an expectation to engage in the celebration until Christ returns. And three, these smaller festivals are only a foreshadow of one to come. But here's the big doozy that Jesus does on his disciples. The traditional script, the presider, what he would have said. So if Jesus would have lifted his glass and this is what normally would have happened for centuries. Jesus lifted his glass and the person, the presider would have said this. This is the bread of the affliction that our fathers ate. And everybody been like, yeah, yeah, I'm used to that. Yep, that makes sense. This is what Jesus says. Verse 19. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. slanderous, shocking, and absolutely heinous for him to say that. In fact, those four little words, this is my body, are considered the four most disputed words in the entire history of the church. The most crucial of all rites and statutes regulated by Jewish people, a sacred ritual. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This bread is about me. This bread is about me. Jesus is reinterpreting religion. Jesus is reinterpreting their faith. Jesus is reinterpreting their freedom and their redemption. 
So where we're at, if you, essentially, if, if you're picking up on what Jesus just said and what he's doing in this final meal, he just said, I am the new Passover. Jesus just said, no, 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 I am the new Exodus. I am the culmination of your entire history. Verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What have we been saying all morning? Christianity is a bloody faith. Before this is scandalous, what we're even hearing right now, it's unnerving. For Jesus to say this, it's uncomfortable, right? No good Jewish man or woman would ever do to ceremonial law, fathom the thought of drinking blood. It's very bothersome. It's gross, Jesus. It's gross. So in my preamble, I quickly rambled off many different covenants, all made in blood, or all these laws surrounding blood. But for most of us, if not all of us, maybe the greater question lies not in the purpose of blood, but for the reason of blood at all. I hope you're asking that. Meaning, let's deal with the giant elephant in the room especially for those here who don't follow Jesus. Let's deal with the elephant in the room. Why can't God just forgive? If God can do whatever he wants, why can't he just forgive? Why take the deaths of those firstborns? Why is Jesus going to be executed at all? Well, obviously, these are immense theological questions and dealings that we hope to sort of understand and apply over the next few weeks. But today, let's stick with the question, why the reason for blood at all? For some, it's really easy here to hear about the Passover or to know the Passover or to, to think about the bloody religion that, that people have called Christianity and to immediately just think this. God is a monster. God is an absolute monster. That God is a judgmental, wrathful, angry God, hell-bent on death and destruction. I've had conversations with a vast number of Christians holding to the theology of this, that God is holy and super perfect. Of course, we are not. Therefore, God is ticked. He's ticked at you, and he's ticked at you, and he's ticked at you, and he's ticked at me and thus he wants to kill us. But because he's merciful, he'll let you take it out on, you know, Sean the sheep. Like, he'll let you take it out on lamb chop. Friends, this is so wrong. That is wrong theology. Sin is an action that vandalizes and defiles God's good world, ourselves, and our community. I've heard it be called even just cosmic treason. And from sin comes decay. We, I mean, again, I don't think I have to tell anybody human depravity exists. We scroll through Twitter for 14 seconds and I just want to throw my phone. All of this possessing and showing that there's a guilt, there's a wedge, there is a debt between God and man. And maybe you're thinking, okay, but what in the world, Casey, that does it have to do with the Passover and the death of firstborns? 
God is a monster. Okay, Casey, what does that have to do with the Lord's Supper and Christ's final days? Everything. <laughs> it has to do with everything. Ancient people and ancient cultures had an understanding of what's called a strong group, a collective, where the families, the family purpose was everything. The family's purpose was at the center. Our Western mindsets are so highly autonomous and we are individualistic juggernauts that we can't comprehend making choices that better an entire unit versus overbettering ourselves. Cultures for years going, my dad's a blacksmith, I'll be a blacksmith. You want me to marry her? You want me to marry him? If it betters the family, I'm on board. Right now that sounds like, this is not how it was back then. Then what I did affected you and what you did affected me as a family. So then the firstborn was everything. The firstborn was everything. They inherited everything. All hopes and all debts were the family embodied in the firstborn. How many people here are firstborns? I am, just curious. So why the Passover is the single greatest Old Testament narrative? Because God told both the Egyptian and Hebrew alike, there was a debt to be paid for cosmic treason, but there's a way out. A way of escape from the oncoming force of judgment. He tells all these people, judgment is coming, temporal judgment. This force is coming for cosmic treason. And guess what? He tells them there's a way out. And they're probably thinking, oh, great. What ritual do I have to do? Or what do I have to do? How much money do I have to give? And God says this in the book of Exodus. He says, the way out is a lamb. A lamb? The most meeker, cutest little animal in existence. God tells him, take a lamb, kill it, eat it, and put its blood on your doorpost. Now, if we think to ourselves for a moment, if we just think, let's put ourselves in that moment. If that sounds insane to us, guess what? That sounded insane to them. Everybody thinks, I think when we read the Old Testament, that all these people would have just been so used to it. Oh my gosh, there's frogs everywhere, plagues. This is normal. No, none of this was normal. If it's weird to us, it would have been weird to them. So as they hear this, God, this is insane, God. Kill these lambs, paint their blood on our door. Peter would have had a field day. That was a Peter joke for all you animal lovers. But think about this. If we believe this, if then we would have believed this, wouldn't we have been begging our neighbors to do it? Joe, 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 you got to put this, you got to do this on your doorpost. Wouldn't there be an earnestness, an urgency? Think about this. Christians, or excuse me, children staring at their parents as their mother and father quake with anxiety. Mothers holding their firstborn as fathers dipped hyssop into a bowl of lamb blood and painted their doors. Friends, Christianity is a bloody faith. But that's because Christianity is a life-giving faith. Every Passover meal they would have had was one of celebration and great joy and gratitude because that painted blood was a representation not of somber, morbid, like death, but of life. 
Blood isn't a sign of dead. Blood is a sign of life. It's the color of life. So why ask for blood at all, God? It's because death, the loss of life, is the aftermath of cosmic treason. And at the Passover in Exodus, there was a choice. You realize that God gave a choice. Either you pay the debt, or God in his merciful justice offers a lamb to pay the debt. It's an invitation. God says, you or the lamb? I don't want to be vulgar, but just to make the point, there will be a dead child in this house or there'll be a dead lamb in this house. That choice still exists today. A choice of choosing to pay the debt ourselves or a lamb. God instituted sacrifice to show the Israelites how much he longed to stay in covenant, covenant, covenant relationship with them to be near to them so that they could be near with him. This covenantal bond that we keep reading through here is like that of marriage between God and man. And Jesus sits there lifting a wine glass high, saying in verse chapter 20, or excuse me, uh, verse 20 of chapter 22, this is what Jesus says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. If you don't know what the new covenant is, there's so many covenants in the Old Testament, but there's a new one in Jeremiah 31, 31. And I just want to read it to you. Again, it should be on the screens. We're just going to sit with it for a moment. This is where God goes, I'm going to change everything. These old covenants are not working. Jeremiah 31, 31 in the Old Testament says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel those day, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be that God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their cosmic treason no more. And these covenants are only made possible through blood. So as Christ lifts this this wine glass, saying, I am the new Passover by my blood being poured out for you, you can have redemption and you can find freedom from your bondage, from your slavery, whatever that may be, whether that be pornography, whether that be the needs of man affirmation, whether that be the bondage of self-loathing or self-hatred, whether that be enslavement of bitterness, anger, jealousy, fear. Jesus saying you no longer, you no longer have to be slaves to sin, death in this world. There is a way out. For those here who don't follow Jesus, there is a way out. What God didn't say was this. If you say a certain number of prayers, I'll pass over you. What God didn't say is this. If you work really hard, I'll pass over you. What he didn't say is if you read your Bible for 18 hours a day, I'll pass over you. If you show up to every church gathering, I'll pass over you. If you have a coffee or burrito with Pastor Casey, I'll pass over you. 
It's close, but no, I'll pass over you. Even if you do your best, you give every dollar you have to charity, I'll pass over you. None of that was said. Only through trusting Jesus as a substitutionary lamb, only for our wrongdoing will we be set free from, from bondage. It, that's it. There's nothing more to say to that. Oh, in case you now tell me how much money I have to give in the church. Well, tell me how to, no. There is a way out. Many scholars believe that this meal, this last supper, that Christ didn't even bring a roasted lamb. That's speculation, but the point is strong. There is no need for a roasted lamb because the substitutionary lamb is not on the table, but seated at the table that is Christ Jesus. Then Christ in spotted blood, this paint is painted over the doorposts of our hearts and over our lives. If, you need, if I need to be backed up on this, I brought a quote in. Author Richard Phillips backs me up. He says that the very heart of our Christian faith is a precious red substance, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ's blood, he not only gives life, but it also maintains life. You ready for this? I, maybe, I, might, I should wrap it up, but I'm just gonna ramble these off. You're taking notes, good luck. Here it goes, ready? Because it's Christ's blood that purchases us Acts 20. It's Christ's blood that justifies us, Romans 5. It's Christ's blood that which redeems us, Ephesians 2. Colossians 2, we have peace through the blood. Hebrews 9, our consciences are cleansed by the blood. Hebrews 13, we're sanctified by the blood. You want me to keep going? You over it? I'll keep going. First Peter, we're elected by his blood. First Peter, again, we are ransomed by his blood. In Revelation chapter 1, we are set free by his blood. This is why John the Baptist in the next gospel account, chapter one, he sees Jesus coming down the street towards him and he bellows and he roars and he cries out, behold, that is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Nobody else would have been like, what? That is the lamb of God. Christ's blood is a metaphor that stands in proof for the suffering love of God. Christ's blood showcases that there is no sorrow that God has not known. There's no grief that he has not borne and there's no price that God is not unwilling to pay in order to be your personal God and for you to be personal with him. It's an enduring love, which I think, if I can be so bold, every single one of us long for. An enduring love. I'll end with this. So when we speak of the crimson blood of Jesus, what we're saying is, this is the depth of Christ's divine commitment to rescue and protect and sustain all of those who are in need. Amen?